This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 389th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today has been described by the New York Times as, quote, the king of low-budget horror movies, close quote. He made his name as a producer of 2007's Paranormal Activity, a film that cost $15,000 to make and grossed $193 million. And he has since continued to specialize in the horror genre, producing the many installments of the Paranormal Activity, Insidious, Purge, and Sinister franchises, and the hit 2020 version of The Invisible Man. But his success has extended far beyond the grindhouse to the arthouse as well. As a producer of 2014's Whiplash, 2017's Get Out, and 2019's Black Klansman, which brought him his three Best Picture Oscar nominations— and of two landmark HBO shows, the 2014 limited series The Normal Heart and the 2015 true crime docuseries The Jinx. I'm talking about the founder and CEO of Blumhouse Productions, Jason Blum. Over the course of our conversation, the 52-year-old and I discussed how he wound up working as a producer for the first time on a film directed by his college roommate, Noah Baumbach, what led to his long friendship and ongoing collaboration with Ethan Hawke, with whom he most recently teamed up on the acclaimed Showtime limited series The Good Lord Bird? How he was shaped by a five-year stint working for Bob and Harvey Weinstein at Miramax, and what it was like going independent after that? Why Blumhouse specializes in horror, and how the company manages to make a profit on such a consistent basis? Plus, much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Great to speak with you, Jason. Thank you for making the time. And I guess just to start at the very beginning, can you share with our uh, our viewers, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? Sure. I was born actually in Los Angeles. I moved to New York when I was very young. My dad was an art dealer. He had a gallery in LA actually called the Ferris gallery, which is my middle name, mm -hmm. uh, gave Warhol his first West coast show. He showed the soup cans there at the Ferris gallery. And, uh, my mother was an art historian. Um, they're both still alive. Uh, my mom was a professor of art history. She taught different here in LA. She taught at Riverside and, uh, on the East coast, she spent most of her time teaching at uh, SUNY purchase. She's retired now. Um, but I definitely grew up with artists and in the arts and with two parents who were in the arts. And, uh, you know, had I not 
had those parents, I probably would have been doing something else. So I guess, you know, I know that you eventually went off to Vassar, but before that, if you can think back to your adolescence and there may be people at that stage uh, who are watching or listening or whatever, I'm just curious, do you remember what your interests and passions were as, as a kid? Sure. I definitely do. Um, I've actually been thinking a lot about my adolescence because I just read this great book, which I would highly recommend to all of all of you uh, fellow Zoomers out there called Notes on a Silencing. And it's uh, by the by a woman named Lacey Crawford. I met her the other day and uh, it's about her experience at St. Paul's. Um, not a good experience, but it's a, it's a, it was, it made, I've been thinking a lot about my adolescence because I went to um, boarding school as well. I went to a school called Taft before that. I went to public school outside of New York city. I grew up in a little town called Dobbs Ferry during the week on the weekends. I was in, in the city with my dad. And when I was a kid, you know, all the through, through high school and then into college, you know, I was always um, kind of an oddball. I always was there were, I went in and out of like, when I was a freshman in high school, I was just a loser, like straight up. I was the kid who was, I was the, the kid who, you know, everybody made fun of. Now I wasn't always like that all the way through. I, I had, by the time I was a senior being weird was actually cool. So I was actually kind of cool when I was a senior, but I definitely was always, um, just, I, you know, I, I, I liked, I liked kind of weird things. And I think that had a lot to do with my parents, you know, most people's dads is, wasn't an art dealer and, you know, and, and, and so, you know, I had pictures of modern art on my wall at Taft and in 1988, that was pretty weird. So, uh, so that's, that's certainly one thing I remember. Yeah. But. Well, so you eventually do go off to Vassar and I guess I wondered what at that time you're thinking was going to be the sort of direction for your future. I had read at one point you were somewhat involved with acting. Was that also ever really a, a realistic goal? I I don't know. I, you know, I think I liked aspects of it. I was not very good at it. I, I and Vassar, I majored in, in filmmaking and I minored and I'm almost minored in economics. And uh, that was more, that was very apropos of what I wound up doing. That was a great path to follow for a producer, economics and filmmaking. And uh, I did act. I acted uh, quite a bit in high school and quite a, quite a, quite a bit more in college, but I gave it up with it within six months after graduating. So I don't, I don't think my heart was really in, in it. I, I really found my passion in producing, which is kind of facilitating and being close to artists, but not, not doing the actual creating myself. And that I'm only linking this to you because you brought it up, but that was, that was, you know, my, I, my, my dad kind of modeled that behavior for me. So it was very familiar to me to, you know, create a path and, and help artists realize their vision. That's what my, that's what my father did too. Absolutely. And I guess the first artist whose vision you helped to realize was your roommate, right? Can you tell a little bit about who that was? Yeah. So my roommate was uh, Noah Baumbach. Uh, who's a great uh, writer director. And um, he was my roommate at college. And then after college, I, I spent a year in Chicago where my primary activity was selling cable television. I sold cable TV door to door, which I always say I was, I was, I graduated from that to being a real estate agent in New York. I got my real estate license. And I always say those were the two things that best prepared me for a, uh, for a career in entertainment. Um, but uh Anyway, so so I was roommates with Noah for a couple of years, and uh, I was lucky when I was at college. I was very, I had a very, I was 
aware of not much, but one thing I was very aware of was how unique it was to be 20 years old and not have to worry about, you know, I was lucky my parents paid for my college, so I didn't have to worry about eating. I didn't have to worry about making money to live. And you could go to the, and I went to it. I, I, I was very lucky to go to a fancy well-endowed school. So they gave you a movie camera or you could put on a play or you could just do whatever, whatever you wanted to you go play squash or yeah. whatever you, you know, it's, it's kind of amazing. And I was very lucky to realize at the time that this was very unique. And when I graduated, things would not be the same. <laughs> so we would always make jokes about that. And Noah actually wrote a movie about it. And the movie was initially called fifth year. And it was about us. It was about five kids in school, in college who made up reasons to stay in college for an extra year because they didn't want to go out and they were terrified to graduate and go into the real world. And it, miraculously he wrote that script and I mean, it was a, it wasn't easy. It was three years and a million no's, but eventually that movie was made and it was, it was called kicking and screaming. Um, it was made in the early nineties. And that was the first, the first credit I ever got on a movie was, was that was kicking and screaming. It's amazing. And you mentioned though, that before it's not like it was a direct route right into right from Vassar into producing. There were a few detours of, of other quite varied things. And I guess I wonder if you can just talk about how you then worked your way back into uh, essentially producing with another guy who people will have heard of named Ethan Hawk. Oh, yes. So, so uh, like I said, I'd gone, I did cable TV in Chicago. Then I was a real estate agent in New York. I was raising money for kicking and screaming and miraculously someone who I went to college with uh, her name was Catherine Kellner and her father, Peter Kellner was an, was a silent investor in this little company called Arrow Entertainment. And Arrow Entertainment was a guy run by a guy named Dennis Friedland. And um, coincidentally, Dennis and I had something in common, which is Dennis spent 50% of his time as a commercial real estate agent and 50% of his time in the movie business. Wow. <laughs> which is pretty what funny. Are the odds? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. And so we 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 met my my this friend put us in touch and he read Kicking and Screaming. And every week, one summer, all summer long. We'd go up there. Noah and I would go up there and meet. We'd try and get him to do kicking and screaming. And finally, I'd actually applied to graduate school for producing. I'd applied to Peter Stark and I'd applied to the other one, USC, whatever that one's called, producing program at UCLA and the Peter Stark at yeah. USC. And, uh, and I got into both. And my dad at that point was like, uh, I paid for a Vassar. That's it. I'm done. So if you want to go to those schools, you got to take out a loan. And I, I didn't, I was prepared to do that. And as I was kind of about to go, Dennis called me whenever it was, I, I don't remember, you know, maybe it was August or something and said, look, I have good news and bad news. He said, the, the bad news is I'm not going to make kicking and screaming, but the good news is, uh, I'm going to give you a job and I want you to do acquisitions for Arrow Entertainment, which I didn't have any idea what that meant, but uh, but it was a good salary. And so I decided I decided to do it. Right. And while I was at Arrow, I continued to produce Kicking and Screaming, which hadn't gotten made yet. And I was told at one point, if you get Ethan Hawke and Kicking and Screaming, we'll make it. And so I, I stalked him and he was doing a seagull on Broadway and I went to see the show. And then I accosted him afterwards and jammed Kicking and Screaming into his hands. And I continued to annoy him we would like, I would like pretend to be chance meeting him when I had orchestrated <laughs> it very, very specifically. And anyway, 
about three or four months later, Ethan said, you know, I mean, he said later, he said, he said, he said, you know, all of my friends at that time, they wanted to be writers or directors um, or actors. No one wanted to be a producer when they were 23 in New York at that time. Right. And he was like, you're the only guy I know. And I got this theater company called Malapart. We need a producer. Do you want to produce it? And I said, I was very, you know, I'm not doing kicking and screaming, but, uh, but, but, uh, but I was very excited. And I, I, we met, I mean, we got to know each other very well. I produced this theater company called the Malapart theater company, like from 93 to 95, something like that. And we became fast friends and great friends. And, and we've really been great, great friends ever since we've done about eight projects together. We just did the good Lord bird actually, for which, for which we just want a Peabody, which is our th- Katie. That's our third Peabody. So please, you must correct that's, that bio immediately. <laughs> that's amazing. And, and I think the first thing that you and Ethan, I believe did do outside of the theater company was Hamlet 21 years ago, right? Maybe that would. Yes. Yes. And I'm actually in Hamlet, uh, in the plane in first class. If you look in with the seats, I'm like sitting two a row away from, from Ethan. And your, your Hitchcockian cameo. There my Hitchcockian cameo. That was, that was, uh, that was Michael Amareda. And that was the first movie that he and I did together. And one of the first movies I executive produced that movie, yeah. one of the first credits I got. And then a movie, uh, uh, I, I love that movie. It was, it was an well, odd and, cool and such movie. a variety of stuff you've done with him, Sinister, The Purge, stuff that we'll talk about, but uh, leading up, as you say, to the good Lord Bird. But I want to ask you about what must have felt like going from, you know, the minor leagues to the Yankees, basically, when you in the heyday of Merrimax, right? The you You go for, I think, about five years to Merrimax. This is if I have my dates right, 95 to 2000, something like that. Yeah, and that right. is within that period, English patient and Shakespeare in love win best picture that's dimension. Right. The Bob side of things starts really taking off with, with horror and the kinds of genre movies they were doing. And, you know, there's a lot of obviously success there, but also for anyone there, I know it was a, 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 a meat grinder of a place to work. And so I just wonder if you, what you, take away most or what you, when you look back at that, that five-year stretch, uh, what stands out the most to you? I started working at Miramax and I, 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 my mother always says I have a real knack for starting something way, I get in way over my head really fast early. So when Dennis asked me to run or do acquisitions for Arrow Entertainment, I didn't know what that was. And, and I, I played a year of catch up. I've, I've done that over and over. I, when I had a deal at Paramount, it was a, I'd never produced a studio movie and suddenly I had a deal at Paramount. I had no idea what I was doing. And I really suffered from that when I was at Miramax. I got to Miramax and to your point, I was, I was working, I was like in the, I don't know, it's beyond quadruple A league or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and these were pros. They spent more on one movie than was our entire budget for 12 movies at Arrow. Mm-hmm. And um, I did it for a year and I got very depressed and I was uh, really struggling. And I went to this great cognitive therapist in, uh, in New York, a guy named Stephen Jacobson. I still remember his name. And he gave me this very, I wouldn't recommend the book now because it, wouldn't, it was meaningful to me at that time. But he gave me this great book for me at that moment called The Assertive Option. And, and, you know, I have a million memories from Miramax, but I remember with Stephen Jacobson, the assertive option, I was going to quit after 14 months. And this guy really helped me 
turn the experience around. And, and, and he did. And after two years, I, I, I figured it out and I started having a lot of fun there as, as strange as that may sound. It was, it was super high pressure. It was super difficult. It was definitely, you know, borderline abusive, but there were also things about it that were great. And I'm, you know, I made it three more years. I didn't, I, I, I'm very, I feel like I got out just in time. I feel like people who were at Miramax longer than four or five years, you could never recover. But I feel like I got out just in time to learn all the things that I did. And I would include those, like learn the things to do and not to do. And then I, I, I escaped with my, um, my morality intact. Right. And I, I just want to prompt you, if you don't mind, to share I, one amazing story I'd heard involved the movie, the movie that became The Others that uh, you had a, a, a globe trotting experience with. Yeah, that was great. That was a great, that was a great time. I was in, I was at the Berlin Film Festival and Harvey called me, he was in London. And I think he had been like at lunch or something with Anthony Minghella. Someone had tipped him off to, to, the, uh, to the script called The Others. And he said, um, God, I haven't thought of this story. I haven't told this story in a long time. And he said, uh, I want you to go, I want you to go buy this movie. And I had been at Miramax long enough to know what that meant. And what it meant when Harvey said that was the only way you could tell him you hadn't been able to get the movie is if you were in the presence of whoever was selling it, wherever that person was, and, you know, you got them on the phone and got them to say no to Harvey. Like that was it. Mm. So the people selling it was a group in Spain. And I called them. I was 28 years old, this like child from New York. But I was in Berlin. I said, I'm in Berlin. And I said, we want like to get into deals with the others. And they said, well, it's not for sale. And we're never selling it to Miramax ever. We've heard about Harvey and we've heard about everything there. We're never selling it. I said, OK, thank you very much. And I hung up the phone. And I got a ticket to Spain and I went to the, uh, the one great thing is at the one great thing about Miramax is at least they, you know, they weren't cheap. Money was no, was no, you, you, you had access to endless resources. Right. They asked you to do impossible things, but not for no money. Thank God. So, so anyway, I was staying at the Ritz in, in Spain, <laughs> which was, which was very exciting, except that was in a very pressful situation. So I wasn't able to enjoy it as much right. as I could have. And I, um, I got there at night. I slept. I woke up the next morning and I went to the guy's office at 10 o'clock. Of course, it was Spain. What was an open it? You know, the guy, the guy, the woman said, what are you doing here? You know, no one, no one would be here till noon. Right. So I sat in the office like a dentist's office. I sat in the office and at noon, the guy walks in the door. I forget the guy's name. And he, he, you know, the woman says he won't see me. And I said, hello, I'm Jason Blum. I know you won't sell this, but I'm going to be fired unless I tell Harvey I'm here in this office with you right now and you get on the phone. If you have to tell him no to your face and say, I've done everything. And if you want to do that, fine, then I'll yeah. keep my job, but otherwise no. And he said, all right, well, I'll go to lunch. He's like, I'd rather go to lunch with you than call Harvey. <laughs> the long story short is we bought the movie. It took three weeks, but we bought the movie after That's that. That's amazing. <laughs> um, and, and just uh, one, one last thing to kind of button up that, that, chapter just before Blumhouse came about in 2000, you know, of course, everyone now looks back at that era differently than we did at the time. Like things have come to light that uh, have, have, you know, been terrible. And uh, I guess though, in your experience, I think like most people, people knew Harvey was a jerk, right? A bully, but not necessarily 
much beyond that. And in your case, I read he would like the extent of it in terms of you having to deal with uh, terrible stuff as well. He did. He literally throw a cigarette at you. He did. He did throw a cigarette at me. But, you know, I, I, w- I was obviously I'm still processing, you know, shocked and horrified about the sexual abuse stuff of Harvey. That that was something that um, I was shocked when I heard it. It never crossed my mind that any of that was happening ever. But uh, but he was, you know, he was very he never he never he never hit me or pushed me. But there was a there was a movie called Run, Lola, Run. And uh, we were in Toronto and uh, we were bidding on the movie and the people selling the movie. A guy named it was a guy named Steve Saltzman. I don't know if he's in the business anymore. I'm still mad at that guy, Steve <laughs> Saltzman. And anyway, we had a basically a closed deal and we ordered champagne, which was only relevant because when we sued them, we showed them the receipt for the champagne to prove that we got a closed deal. <laughs> we ordered champagne. And anyway, they they came out. I also made mistakes in the negotiation. Also, I, ma- I made one big mistake. Anyway, they came out and they ripped the contract up and we lost we we lost the deal. And we we threatened to sue them. And, and the result of the whole thing was uh, that um, that we signed a first look with the director who we had sued in exchange for indemnifying them to go with Sony Classics, which was kind of amazing. Um, but in the midst of that, if, for losing that deal, he like threw a cigarette kind of he threw it at me. And then he was like, I was going for the garbage can. I was going for the garbage can. But, you know, like when you're when you're in uh an abusive situation like that, you know, I didn't, I, 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 if I was healthier, I would have quit. Right. Or I would have, I, but, but you're like, you know, I've, I owe you blame yourself. Like I deserved it. I lost the movie. I remember thinking that at, at the time, you know, I always thought that I thought he, I deserved having a cigarette thrown at me because uh, the, the, <laughs> the people who lasted, you know, more than a few months at Miramax all like, that was why I was at the therapist, right? Yeah, because right. it was my fault that he threw the cigarette at me. And there was, you know, he collected people who were kind of damaged. And I, you know, I put myself in that category at that time anyway. Well, so whatever, it, I guess I wonder, what was it that in 2000 made you decide I'm going to essentially go out on my own, start my place, Blumhouse. And, and I also wondered because of what has become of it over those, over these last 21 years, was there something, were you familiar with, let's say, I guess the closest thing to a, a precursor to, to what you have become maybe was Roger Corman. Was there some model in your mind of what you wanted this place to be low budget, high return kind of um, genre movies? There was nothing. There was no, there was no, there was one thing. I want to be my own boss. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. You know, and, and looking, but I look back at it, if I had to do my career over again, I should have, I would have, I should have stayed another couple, two or three years actually at Miramax, despite what I said before. I, I know I'm contradicting myself, but I left. I could have used a couple more years of experience before I started my own company. I didn't start Blumhouse in 2000. I actually started a company called Blum Israel, which was a oh. colossal, colossal failure. We produced five or six movies. They were all horrible except one. Now is that uh, Israel, not as in the nation, but the woman who brought you to Miramax, right? That's Amy Israel. Yeah. Yes. Who, 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 who is still a very close, great friend of mine. She got me the job at Miramax and we left together. We started this company together. <laughs> and the only person in the world I know who got the better end of, of Harvey when he was in power was um, a, a, my uncle Bernard, Bernard Salek, <laughs> who was a, who was a wealthy guy, lived in LA and always, kind of enamored with the movie business. And I pitched him endlessly of starting, I wanted an investor. 
And he put up a million bucks and Harvey put up a million bucks and we started Blum Israel. And miraculously, my uncle Bernie got the million back and Harvey lost a million dollars. <laughs> so I still give my uncle, he's the only guy who got the better of Harvey. Right. But the company was, was, uh, the company was, was ill-fated from the very, from the very get-go. But it got me out of, I just, I really, my dad had had his own business and I just really wanted to have my own business. I really didn't want to work for anybody else. Beyond that, I had no idea what it was gonna what it was gonna happen. So after those first, I think it's roughly like seven years of being independent and and sort of struggling in some some sense. How do you you wind up? You're involved. I believe you're you have this deal that you mentioned at Paramount, despite not having produced the studio movie before. And it was out of that era that you had the the kind of career making first big giant hit one of still the one of the biggest hits uh financially ever if you look at i guess it cost 15,000 made 193 million this is paranormal activity how do how do you even get that through the studio system well a couple things you know one thing is after that's just kind of interesting for the story here is after 2 years at Blum Israel I was going to go back to work for Harvey. I was going to run the Weinstein. We had a production at the Weinstein company. And, and I had this moment you wait for your whole life and your career where Harvey and Brad Gray were like, arguing. they weren't had nothing to do with me. They were just competing with each other. I was the beneficiary and I wound up at Paramount. And, and, and that's not the answer to your question, but the answer to your question is, you know, like I said, I wish I was 32 or 33 before I started on my own. I was 30, but I was old enough to basically understand that the movie business was the movie business specifically, as opposed to the television business was specifically about two things. And to a certain degree, this is still true when you're younger. Anyway, it's about doing enough things to get a hit. No one accepts there's no one on the planet except Pixar who can make hit movies over and over and over. And they're not even a person. They're a company. I don't know anyone. There's no one who has a perfect track record, producer, director, actor, anybody. Right. Some people have better track records than other, but no one has. Prepared. So the way that you make it, and it my um, shit, some famous actor, I forget, said you said to my said to my friend, Ethan, told me, said, how do you win an Oscar? And the guy, Ethan, the guy said to Ethan, you know how to win an Oscar? And Ethan said, no. And the guy said, you make a hundred movies. Right. So <laughs> so I knew two things. I knew that you had to get a hit. And the way to get a hit was to keep making movies. And that's what I and, and that's what I did. And Paranormal was like the seventh or eighth movie that I had done. Not be precious not think you're a genius and spend five years developing something that that one special thing, which opens and there's an earthquake and then the movie doesn't work anyway, even if it's great, right? So many factors factor into a hit beyond what any one person can control. That the only way to get a hit is to have multiple movies. One, that's 50%. The other half of the battle is what you do with the hit. And I had a, I was, I had, I was so lucky to have worked at Miramax at a time when we were hit makers. So we'd go to these film festivals, we'd buy a, a movie from a first or second time director, and we'd make them a star. They were immediately a star. They became bankable the minute we bought their movie, right? And nine times, and the directors were always very young, you know, in their 20s. And nine times out of 10, the director would blow it. Most of those directors you've never heard of. And they would blow it because they would say, I made this comedy and it's a huge hit and Miramax bought it and they gave me a three picture deal. My second movie is going to be a horror movie. 
Massive mistake. Massive mistake. The, 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 the way to manage a hit, which is one of the hardest things to do, is when you have a hit, what the industry wants from you is another movie like the hit. So when we had paranormal activity, you know, agents, people would say to me, like, now you got to make a, um, what, you know, insert any big, big, you got to make, I forget the name of the movie I always use. You got to make a big, expensive action movie or a big, expensive horror movie. Yeah. And I was 35 or 36 when paranormal activity happened. And I, and I, I took away from Puramax, if I ever have a hit, I'm not going to fumble it. I'm not going to screw it up. So I immediately made Insidious, Sinister, mm -hmm. The Purge, all low-budget horror movies, exactly like the same model as Paranormal Activity. Eventually, we branched out. Eventually, yep. we did Whiplash. Eventually, we did Black Klansmen. You know, eventually, we did these other movies that weren't, that weren't horror movies either at all or horror movie adjacent. But we didn't ever started doing that until we had, like, a ton of success. So just and, to um, confirm, though, your predisposition, personally, is not necessarily towards horror. It's just that horror financially makes the most sense in this business. No, I don't think that's really accurate. I don't, I'm not like Tarantino or Eli Roth where I grew up loving horror movies. That is that I didn't do, but def like now I'm in a position where I don't need, if I didn't want to make horror movies anymore, I wouldn't make them. And it's still our core business. And the reason it's our core business is though I wasn't a horror movie, I wasn't a horror movie fan specifically, my personality is totally similar to that of a horror fan. And when I finally met horror fans in the horror community from Paranormal Activity, I was finally like, I found my people. Like, this is what I want to do. Like, I, and I was saying yesterday, I was like, as long as I make movies, I'm going to make horror movies. If I stop making horror movies, I'll have stopped making movies. You know, yeah. I, 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 I love the filmmaking community of the filmmaking community in the horror world. And I love the fans in the horror world. And I've now obvious, I couldn't keep doing what I'm doing if I didn't love horror movies, but, um, but you are right that when I made paranormal, I wasn't, but I was like, I just, just what I said, like I, I saw so many people blow yeah. a hit and I knew, I knew how to manage a hit, which is very complicated. And, and you get, you get terrible advice you know, agents and managers and lawyers still to this day, if a director has a hit movie that costs $5 million, they don't, they say your next movie should cost 15. It's the worst advice you can give someone, I think the worst. Well, and it's, it's hard enough to follow a hit with under any circumstances, but particularly when, as I recall, Paramount was not wanting to necessarily share the credit when that happened. And that led to, I guess, what to your going independent and again, right. From, or breaking from them. Right. Yeah. Paramount was horrible. When we did a uh, paranormal activity, they were horrible. Uh, Brian Lord, who's represented at me for, we've been friends and he's been the great mentor of the company. He called Brad Gray the week after paranormal activity came out. And he said, uh, are you going to call Jason Blum? I was the sole producer of the movie. And Brad Gray says, who's Jason Blum. And uh, that was very, very well, Paramount was a studio in trouble yeah. and they had very little successes. And this movie was so, our deal was horrible. You know, Paramount made almost all the money on the movie and continues to, the deal on the paranormal movies is Paramount makes everything and, and everyone else makes five cents. Right. And uh, that it was so lucrative, it's so profitable that they did the opposite of thank the talent. They wanted to erase the talent. 
They wanted us gone because they wanted, they just didn't want to give credit to anyone except to themselves. Now, I'm very grateful to them for that. At the time, it was extraordinarily difficult and I was furious, but I, I thanked them because um, I was begging to stay at the company and my company, I never would have had the company that I had if I stayed and, and, and they let me go and, uh, and I left. And, and, so and that's where Blumhouse really. That's where we started. Yeah. That's where so, we started. Yeah. I mean, we, part of the theme of this conversation is the, the way that the industry changing and changed over recent years. And you've been at the forefront of that with Blumhouse, because I think as, as you know, has been noted, a lot of people have tried to copy your model. It sounds easy enough to copy, but it's not obviously, otherwise everybody would, would successfully do it. But I guess I just wonder how you have very specific criteria that you've established, I believe, from what I understand where, you know, a budget will not go over a certain amount unless there's X kind of talent that's associated or it's one of the, a certain studio partner versus others. Like, can you just take us into your equation about whether or not to do a project? Because in that, and particularly with horror, because as you say, Paranormal Activity is 2007, but in the years since you, you've had a number of other huge horror, you know, small budget, horror hits that spawned franchises and all kinds of stuff. Insidious is 2011, The Purge is 2013, and many others. So just your equation, if, if you can share that, to whatever extent you could share that. Yeah, sure. It's not it's not an equation. It's just, and and by the way, it's it's incredibly challenged now, it sounds, and we, we're, we don't, we operate differently now. The streamers have upended everything, and COVID really upended everything. But the philosophy is quite simple, which is all the talent, meaning us as the producers, the actors, the writer, the director, forgoes any kind of meaningful upfront compensation. And, and what I mean by that is we work with directors whose quotes are a million dollars or a writer whose quotes is $500,000 or actors who's made $3 million. And everyone, instead of making what they've made on their last movie, works for scale or in our case works for free which keeps the budgets of the movie massively smaller in exchange for working for scale in exchange for, for, for going their fee, they get two, two things, creative control. So the director has final cut. They have final say over casting. They have final say over so many, their department heads, like so much more than they ever get as a for hire, because I, I think it's immoral to tell someone to bet on yourself, but then you get to tell them what to do, right? So if you're going to tell someone to bet on yourself, right. you got to let them bet on yourself. One of the reasons the model doesn't travel, no studio can do this. It's, it's, right. they can't, they, they all think they're too brilliant. They can't give control to directors like that. The kind of directors we give control to. Um, that's one. And two, you give them a real fundamental interest in this, in the movie. So if the movie's successful, they pay. And I'm, I'm a psychopath about that. I, I, most of the people are compensated with box office bonuses. And so that there's no lawyer or accountant involved. If the movie makes $50 million, I get a hundred thousand dollars. It says it in my con, anyone can have your, your kid can understand it. Yeah. And when our movies hit our box office levels, I take a film me with the FedEx thing, sending the checks, I send a film of me to the thing and I say, you hit 50 million, your $100,000 check is going to be tomorrow and they get it tomorrow. <laughs> News travels fast in Hollywood. So Great. people are also in a way that they're not willing to work for the studios because they don't do that. They take forever to pay and blah, blah, blah. So we've, we've been able to get incredibly talented, very expensive people 
to buy into our model because everyone, their agents and lawyers and accountants know that if they have a success, they're going to get paid fast. Those are the two fundamental tenets of, of, of the movie business side of our business. And, and we've only been talking about that and that's yeah. fine. I'm happy to just talk about that, but just as an accurate picture of kind of my life, yeah. I, my life is kind of split 50, 50 between movies and the business is kind of 50, 50 between movies and TV. Well, so that is another thing that I think is in terms of, changing landscape of the industry. I mean, is that because there are now so many more partners in TV than they're used to for, you know, places that need content? Or is that because you find that your content makes more sense on or, or 50, 50 cents to, to do it for TV as well? Like why, why is TV used to be looked down upon by film people? Now it's seems to be the opposite. Why is that for you? The reason the the business the model that I just described is upended is because the the the, the model that the streamers have is the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. It's it's way more opposite than what it, a typical studio movie. So so if I'm over here with you get nothing, and if the movie's a hit, you get a lot. The studios are, have always been in kind of the middle, which is we're going to pay you a bunch, we're going to pay you a million or two million, and we're going to pay you a, a good size fee up front. But if the movie's really successful you'll get more. The streamers are over here. We're going to pay you super handsomely up front. But if two people see your movie or 2 billion people see your movie, you don't get a penny more. Right. And that's a super, that's there, there, there are good things about that. And there are bad things about that, but it is the, in, you know, I philosophically, by the way, you can't beat them, join them. We're making streaming movies all the time and we take our checks up front. So don't get me wrong. Right, right. But uh, philosophically, I don't, I struggle with it because it puts you immediately at odds with your end user. When I haven't been paid and I'm making a movie with Universal, I can tell them, hey, you got it. That's why I can give my director final cut. I say, hey, guys, I'm not going to make money unless this thing makes money, right? So I'm going to fight for my creative vision. I'm going to fight for my ideas. If I've already been paid and the studio that's financing my thing is spending $50 million on my movie and they've already paid me and everyone else, I have no ground to stand on. And they have all the ground. They have all the moral authority. It's like, hey, producer, shush. You've been paid. Your director's been paid. You don't. You get paid no matter what this thing does. So you got to do what we want to do. They don't do that per se. But 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 I I I you know I that could be just because I'm old and I'm used to used to doing it another way. But they've they've upended you know my my thinking about you know a a healthy creative process. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So just one thing that I find really fascinating about you and your career is that, you know, prior to you, there was sort of a, a horror people are put into one category and then prestige movie people are generally, you know, sometimes put into another. It's always been looked down upon in the industry by the Academy. I mean, you think about the greatest horror movies. They didn't win 
Oscars and all of that. Yeah, like uh, and Get yeah, Out, which should have won. Get well, Out. That, and, 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 and if you think I have a chip on my shoulder or I'm bitter about it, you are correct. <laughs> get Out should have won. And the movie right. that did win the year Get Out won, I guarantee you not one person on the Zoom remembers. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and anyone so, named a movie that won the year Get Out should have won? I think I can, but I agree. I get what you're saying. What is it? You're, was it, it was Shape of Water that year? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, Shape of Water. The real memorable movie, Shape of Water. <laughs> All right, go so, on. So, so my my question, I guess, is what is it? You don't you don't have to do a movie like Whiplash, which I know you've said was theatrically sort of a a frustrating. It's not an easy sell of a movie. All of that. Um, you don't have no, to. No, 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 no. It's an easy sell. They sold it terribly. That's okay, so that was okay. Fair they sold it terribly. It right. was an easy sell. It got nominated for twenty seven Academy Awards. It was an easy sell. They just didn't know how to sell it. Well, made, that, okay. more in, made more in South Korea than the United States. Oh, that's bad. That's bad. But well, go on. Go well, on. So just to note, your some of your what we would call like quote unquote prestige productions, but also that blur that line between horror and more respectable fare. You've got Best Picture Oscar nominations for producing Whiplash in 2014, Get Out in 2017, Black Klansman in 2019. And then there are the two Emmy wins in the middle of that with The Normal Heart for HBO, the limited series, and The Jinx, the true crime docuseries for HBO. So what is, is it a personal desire to not be put in a box as, as just the horror guy or what is it? Uh, why, why do you branch out when you do things like that? Um, well, the reason I, I love horror is because I'm really, you know, the idea of prestige movies and the people who are like, we're doing this important, you know, God's work who are in the movie business. I, I, I just, I bristle at that. I can't stand <laughs> it. So that's why I love horror right. movies. Now the advantage of having a, in my mind, what's the point of having a big successful production company with a lot of weight if you can't tell the stories that you want to tell. So I love doing horror. Like I said, I'll do horror forever. But if something comes into the office that I think, I think all those movies are Blumhouse, you don't, unlikely we're going to do a comedy, right? But I think there, there's a real darkness in Whiplash. There's clearly a darkness in, you know, there's clearly, a, you know, there's nothing more evil than the KKK um, in, in Black Klansmen. And so I think those movies are certainly cousins to horror movies. They're not horror movies by any stretch, but if you, if I like to look at Blumhouse's like dark genre, we did Roger Ailes, we did Loudest Voice in the Room. He's a bad guy. It wasn't a horror series, but he's a bad guy. Right. So they have to fit in the, in that umbrella of, of, of dark genre or dark subject matter. But if they fit in that umbrella and I love it or someone else at the company loves it, we do it. That's what's the point otherwise. And so is Get Out sort of the ideal scenario where it's a absolutely effective horror movie, but also really art. And you it's you betting on a first time filmmaker director. Right. Uh, it's you not spending a fortune. But but do, I mean, I guess is that is that sort of the best experience with a with a, a movie, you know, in 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 terms of blurring the line between horror and art? Did you say it's really art? That would be terrible. I'm only giving you a hard time. Uh, yeah. Because I think in my mind, yeah. um, James Wan is no less artful than, than Jordan Peele. In my mind, the guy who did Insidious, you know, people on the Zoom may disagree, but the guy who did Insidious in the second Insidious movie has as much okay. yeah. a talent as Jordan Peele, for sure. Is there a message in Get Out that is not an Insidious? 
for sure also. Insidious is a fun, scary movie. It doesn't have a lot to say about the world we live in. Get Out is a fun, scary movie that has a ton to say about the world that we live in. Is that the golden ticket for me? No. Was it super fun to do a horror movie that got nominated for Academy Awards? Absolutely. But going forward, are we only looking for horror movies that are about issues? No. We have a lot of them. The Purge is a horror movie. The Pur- We've done five Purge movies. The Purge is about gun control in America. The Purge is about is by a guy who's got a kid and everything this that we all hear, every time there's a shooting, half the country thinks the answer to a shooting is more guns. There's a shooting in a school and the answer is put a guard in the school with the gun. So The Purge is an absurdist idea of like, okay, there's so many killings. Let's make killing legal for 12 hours a year, right? Anyone can kill anyone and it's legal 12 hours a year. In France, they got the satire of the purge in Europe much, but in the US, you know, sadly half the audience is like, yay, the purge is a great idea. In Europe, they got it. In Europe, the purge is called America's nightmare. America's nightmare, one, two, three, four, we're about on our fifth one. So countries that have a more rational relationship to guns understand the purge a lot better. But um, but but that's a long answer to your question. I, it's great to do scary genre movies that have a, a, a message or a political message or something to say in them, but it's not exclusively what I'm interested in doing. The other thing about Get Out is to give you credit where you deserve is that it is, in my mind, the perfect Blumhouse movie and that the budget was four and a half million dollars. We usually don't work with first-time directors, but I don't think it's fair to refer to Jordan Peele as a first-time director. He'd run, wrote, produced, directed, starred a television show for five years. He'd done hundreds and hundreds, he'd done hundreds of hours of, he'd spent hundreds of hours on set. So he really knew what he was doing. Um, And it was a low-budget, high-concept movie. So it was a perfect Blumhouse movie. The next thing was just, do you feel that regardless of genre, regardless of, experience of director or anything. Is there one, do all Blumhouse films share anything in common? I think that they, not all, but almost every movie of ours has some kind of edge. They're there. It's edgy. And I feel like I wouldn't say this of all of them, but more than most other studios, I think our movies are original and I don't, that, that's directly related to the cost. Because when you do stuff for low cost, you can take chances. And when you can take chances, we're more drawn to doing more original things, whether that's the casts, you know, we'll use actors that people haven't seen before or story, storytelling stories that people aren't used to. Um, so I feel like edgy and original, I hope edgy, original and dark. Well, and the first, absolutely. And, and then I guess the frustration for people about the, the a lot of the big studio stuff uh, made by others is that for the very reason you've just described, there is such an, ins- such a, disincentive to do original stuff it's that's why we're seeing so many you know adaptations of board games and video games and everything that seems for a lot of us a bit frustrating do you so with that being said is there what do you make when you see in the past week alone this discovery warner brothers uh merger amazon buying mgm where there's fewer of these places that are actually gonna be out there and therefore maybe less incentive to do original stuff. How, how do you feel when you read the news this week? Very, very clearly about it. I, I was talking to a class of, of kids this morning, um, students this morning. So, so slightly different audience, but, but um, you know, they asked me the same question and, and here, here's very clearly for all of us as consumers, myself included, people who watch movies, go to the movies and watch TV. It's bad. 
consolidation is bad. Consolidation means we're going to get less good things to watch. But I was saying to this class of film kids this morning, the positive side of it is there's much, much, much more opportunity for young people or anyone who's interested in, in doing and in getting into our business because the, the amount of capital being spent on both movies and TV, it's not, there's never been anything close to what's been spent the last two or three years and what's going to be spent for the next two or three more years, medium, long-term, who knows? Right. But right now the opportunity for young people is unparalleled. And that's a good thing. You know, maybe there's the next Scorsese or whoever that never would have gotten to make anything. And now that they will. So I think it's a double-edged sword. I think there are things about it that are bad and things about it that are good. My final question is, you know, we've seen what the pandemic has done to movie theaters. We've seen the sorts of movies that were getting theatrical releases as opposed to going to TV to begin with. With Blumhouse Productions, how long do you believe that uh, there will always be a place in theaters for them? Or do you, ex do you expect that five, 10 years from now, most movies that are not giant, huge budget tentpole movies will have to primarily go through the smaller screen? I don't, you know, I have a different, everyone has a different point of view about this. My point of view is that there will actually be much more choice in theaters, but the choice will last for a much shorter time. So you'll have many different kinds of movies playing in theaters, but they'll only last a week. You'll only have a week to see them. And I don't think the theatrical experience is going away as much as I don't think movies made Broadway go away. It's just not. I think people like to gather. There's no... You can't compare the experience of sitting in a dark room full of 300 people watching something on a 40 foot screen with your best home entertainment system. There are different experiences. So I don't think it's going to go away, but I do think it will be fundamentally different forever post COVID than it's ever been before. Yeah. All right. Well, Jason can't thank you enough for doing this. I really appreciate your time. And uh, I know everybody else here does as well. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Nice to talk to you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.